0: Good evening, Church. Good evening, Church. It has been a wonderful series thus far. I've been learning, personally learning a lot from this uh Reformation series on the Church Fathers. Tonight we uh we are gonna talk about a very important man named Augustine, the doctor of grace. Uh you should have received an outline hopefully on the way in. If not, you could raise your hand. I think Pastor Danny will just quickly give you one of these. Uh I saw Pastor Danny's outline yesterday and I thought that's a great, great <laughs> idea. Because there's so many events that are happening in Augustine's life that it kind of helps you track what is going on. And also a outline that uh, will serve, uh, that will help us uh, as the main talking points in Augustine's life. Well, as Pastor Danny is passing that out, will you turn in your Bibles to Psalm 105, verse 4. Psalm 105, verse 4. Psalm 105, just. One verse, and I've chosen this verse because this is a verse that is cited four times in St. Augustine in his work on the Trinity and uh, perhaps captures the spirit of the early church fathers. Psalm 105, verse 4. Let me read God's word to you Seek the Lord and his strength, seek his face continually. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that through our study of Augustine, uh, you would teach us that we can never find any true meaning or lasting happiness unless and until we find it in you. Teach us through the life and the works of Augustine, whom you use as your vessel to render praise unto you for your sovereign grace in saving wretched sinners like us. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Well, it is Augustine who gave us the Reformation, so wrote the Princetonian B.B. Warfield in his assessment of the influence of Augustine on church history. It isn't simply that the two leading figures of the Reformation, Martin Luther, who was an Augustinian monk, and the Genevan John Calvin, who quoted Augustine more often than any other theologian that made Warfield say this, Rather, it was that the Reformation recaptured Augustine's doctrine of grace over the hum, human, humanistic view of man that came from Pelagius. It is the uh, Augustine's doctrine of grace that we know today as Calvinism. As B.B. Warfield rightly notes, when the great revival of religion, which we call the Reformation, came, it was on its theological side a revival of Augustinianism. The force of Augustine's influence was felt far greater and far wider than just the Reformation. Augustine shows up just about everywhere. He is one of the most commonly referred to figures from a variety of traditions. The Roman Catholics claim St. Augustine's as his own. and You will rarely find a Roman Catholic university that do not have a building with his name. He's the founding father to evangelicals of all stripes. Thomas Aquinas, who was the premier theologian of the medieval era, never even had to refer to Augustine by name. He was always the theologian. It was Augustine who sparked Martin Luther to read Paul and the Protestant Reformation ensued. When someone was looking for an apt title for Jonathan Edwards' place in history, America's Augustine won out. Now, when you consider this high praise of Augustine, it is no wonder that Adolf Harnack once said, the greatest man the church has possessed between Paul the Apostle and Luther the Reformer was Augustine. It has been said of modern theologians that we are dwarfs standing on the shoulders of giants. And there are many giants that we have looked thus far in our series in Polycarp, in Irenaeus, Athanasius. But the giant that stands out in the history of the church in which the whole development of the Western life and all of its phases in which you stand upon is St. Augustine. Now, people like to debate who is the goat of all theologians, and it's quite difficult to do so. It's like comparing Babe Ruth to Barry Bonds or Michael Jordan to LeBron James. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to settle the debate once and for all. For Augustine, not, not for this, but this will help too. But as great as Aquinas and Luther and Calvin was, they had one great advantage over Augustine. That is, that they had an Augustine before them. You see, Augustine didn't have an Augustine to depend on before he sets forth his writing. Augustine was very much a pioneer in formulating some of his works of the five million words that he wrote. There are four great books that stand out from Augustine. One of his most famous works is The City of God, a massive treatise written in response to the fall of Rome, and it remains the standard text in the history of political theory. Another great book of his is On Christian Doctrine, a foundational book on how to read the Bible, how to study the scriptures. It was a first of a kind and became a guidebook to the Christian education given principles on how to interpret the Bible. Then his great great book. Next book is on the Trinity, which gave the Trinity its most comprehensive and definitive formulation, built on the work of earlier theologians and councils, especially the confessions of Nicaea and Constantinople, which Augustine gave his own distinctive feature of the Trinity, focused on the reality of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit as an eternal community of love. And any serious modern theologian studying the Trinity must reference Augustine's seminal work. But his most famous work by far was his Confessions, an autobiography of his conversion, a brilliant fusion of classical culture and Christian theology. And in setting out his life as an internal psychological struggle, it was very much an early precursor of the modern novel. One of the leading scholars of the Church Fathers, Jaroslav Pelikan, said this concerning the Confessions, that if Augustine had written only the Confessions he would have to appear on anyone's list of great writers and great books. And if there is a must read book for you, you must pick up Augustine's Confessions. It's a classic, a must read. It is Augustine's autobiography, but he tells, as he tells his story, it actually becomes the story of every Christian. And it's the only book that I know that it is addressed entirely to God. Every sentence in it is a prayer. That is how Augustine wrote it. And by reading it, you will freshly renew your love for God and praise him for his lavish grace. Now when you consider the towering figure that Augustine was, all the superlatives that are spoken of him, we would be quite surprised to find out that this theological giant was a deeply flawed man. A man who lived in absolute bondage to sex and to lust and worldly ambition for 32 years prior to his conversion. His is a story of running from God with his mind bent on pursuit of worldly wisdom and his heart captivated by the pleasures of sin. Woe, woe! he later wrote, by what steps I was brought down to the depths of hell. But at the heart of Confessions, which is really the biography which we will be talking about today, the great theme is the grace of God to a lost sinner. It is this, and not himself, that is its theme. We read in the opening prayer in his confessions, you have made us for yourself, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. That great sentence, I'm sure you have heard and quoted many times here at Pillar, sounds the key note to his book and really his life and echoes through all of its pages and deep down in his soul, you have made us for yourself and our heart is restless until it finds his rest in you. And the chronicle of his own life that Augustine provides for us is a book, and this book is a story of restlessness. It's a story of a man who, as a youth, was intellectually head and, head and above, shoulders above the rest and recognized for his great skills, but a man who was also deeply troubled and restless. Augustine was born in 354 in the Roman province of New Media, which is modern-day Algeria, and its hometown was Thagast. The gas was 2,000 feet above sea level, and it was surrounded by mountains, and there were another 1,000 feet or so, and it was a very fertile plain. In fact, the mo- it was the most fertile land in North Africa. And if you guys ever wondered where the lions and the bears and the tigers were used in the Roman amphitheaters, well it came from the mountains in Augustine's hometown. And Augustine, as Augustine was born, Rome had reached its zenith. He lived during the era of post-Constantine Rome, which means one generation after the emperor Constantine was converted to Christianity. This extraordinary event meant that Augustine was born in an empire Christianized by Constantine and his heirs free from persecution. It is also to import that in the context that alongside of Christianity, Plato's philosophy and the schools that follow him was the trendiest and the most popular teaching in the day. That is really important. It was also a time of doctrinal advance. Augustine lived right in between the Nicene Creed of 325 and the Chalcedonian Creed of 451. This too was important because Augustine would live during the time of heresies. Heresies were popping left and right, and of course, Augustine would be front and center in some of the most heated controversies and debates against heretical teachers. It's also important to note that as Augustine lived, Rome declined. And as Augustine died, Rome fell. Hippo, the town where Augustine was a bishop, was surrounded by vandals as he was dying in 430. Carthage fell in 439, and Rome fell in 455, and the whole Western Empire in 476. In other words, Augustine lived in one of the most tumultuous times between the shifting of whole civilizations. He stood on the watershed of two worlds. The old world was passing away, and the new world of the medieval era was entering in. And that is, it has been strikingly said that the miserable existence of the Roman Empire in the West almost seems to have prolonged for the express purpose of affording an opportunity or the influence of Augustine to be exerted on human history. What a time for Augustine to be born and to live and to die. Well, Augustine was born of mixed parents. That is, his father was a pagan who did not convert to Christianity before his death. And he was also unequally yoked to a woman of great godly devotion of faith, and her name was Monica. Now, perhaps she is the most revered Christian mother Apart from Mary herself, Monica would play a huge role in Augustine's life. She prayed daily for her son, but in his youth, Augustine became a wayward young man and strayed from his mother's teaching. Augustine tells of his restless heart early on at the age of 16 years old, with nothing better to do, looking for fun, playing all kinds of pranks with his delinquent friends. One night, these mischievous, mischievous youth headed off into a town looking for trouble climbed over a wall, went into a neighbor's field, and stole a bunch of pears from his tree. And they ate a few of them. And since they weren't so tasty and didn't really care about the pears to begin with, they gave the rest to the pigs. Now perhaps you have had your own pear incident where one day as a teenager you and a group of gals went to Claire's and stole a pair of earrings or a Sour Belt from Sweet Factory. And Augustine is speaking of his restless heart and really the tragedy of the human fallen condition. And it's quite striking that he would include this incident of stealing pears because it's utterly trivial. And it's quite possible, quite opposite of the kind of thing you might find at a typical Christian bookstore. And uh, you look for those life testimonies and generally you will not find amongst the best sellers of Christian testimonies of people stealing pears from a neighbor's garden. You'll probably find something more outrageous and spectacular. Like I was once a crazy villain, an ex-con, and someone gave me a tract and I found Jesus. Or I was a drug junkie and I was a homeless man, but I found Jesus smoking pot or doing acid or something like that. Now that excites us. And if you read or have read something like this, and if you're honest, you probably are not reading it to find out about the person's conversion. More, but more likely reading it to find out what it's like to be a murderous gangbanger. Or what smoking pot is like. Because most of our conversions is I grew up in the Christian church, gradually came to Christ, and probably the worst thing I I can recall doing was stealing a few chocolate gummy bears from the candy store. And Augustine is writing something equivalent to that here. And if he had written something outrageous like murdering someone and burying his body and getting away with it, well, it would make for an interesting story, but you would never identify with him. And you see, by choosing something trivial and petty, Augustine is drawing the reader into the story. And that's important because what he's trying to do with his confessions is tell the story of every man and woman born from Adam. For Augustine, this trivial crime, something so commonplace, opens a window into the soul. Why did he steal? Why does anyone steal? As Augustine examines the common reasons for such an act, he realizes that they don't apply. He's not starving. He's not hungry. And the food wasn't particularly tasty. Those are reasons why people might steal a pear. He almost goes out of his way to speak of the utter pointlessness of it. He even recounts how he's he's got even better fruit in his own garden. But they eat it, throw it to the pigs, and they have a laugh about it. So why did he do it? Well, Augustine says that it doesn't lie in in anything that you gain from it, but he says that he had stolen the pears just for the pleasure of stealing. He enjoyed stealing for no other reason than the fact that it was forbidden. And that raises all kinds of questions. Why is it that breaking the law is so exciting? Why does it make him feel good to do that which is forbidden? What is it about things that are forbidden that gives us such a rush when we do it? Well, as Augustine explains it, at the root of it, his act of stealing and doing the forbidden was a perverse imitation of God. He says that when you break the law, you do it to make yourself feel like God. And that's why he says sin feels so great. Because you are throwing off the yoke of your creator and you're feeling like your creator yourself. He says all who set themselves far from you, and raise themselves up against you, imitate you in a twisted manner. Now in an even deeper restlessness emerges in Augustine's life when at the age of 17 he was sent to Carthage to study rhetoric. Now after running around the streets of Thagast, his parents raised enough money to send him to Carthage, and Augustine was very smart, and his parents recognized this about him, and his parents were your typical ambitious parents who would sell their organs for their kids to get into the best school. And speaking well in public was a very respected skill in those days. Anyone who wanted to have an important job in society as a politician, a teacher, a lawyer, or a church leader had to learn how to speak well and also persuasively. Now, Augustine's fathers knew that if his son could speak well, he could make a good career in this world. So Augustine was sent to study rhetoric in Carthage, the capital and cultural center of Roman Africa. But like a normal college student who goes off to college, he found much more than education. He was soon surrounded by forbidden loves that fueled his fire and his lustful heart. These are Augustine's words, I came to Carthage, and all around me hissed a cauldron of illicit loves. Now that Latin word for Carthage is cardigo, and the Latin word Sardigo means frying pan, a cauldron. And that little wordplay, cardigo, Sardico, was how Augustine saw Carthage. It was a cauldron of sin. And he felt as if he were in the bondage to what he called these unholy loves. He sought the love of a woman, his first unholy love. He gives very little historical information about his relationship with his concubine, whom he would be with for the next dozen years or so, We don't even know her name. We do know that they had a son together. And he relates one scenario to us rather briefly, which scholars believe was an incident with his concubine. He says, during the celebration of your solemn rites within the walls of your church, I even dared to lust after a girl and to start an affair that would procure the fruit of death. My stiff neck took me further away from you. I loved my ways, not yours. The liberty I love was merely that of a runaway. Augustine had an addiction to sex. And although this unholy love, he did not find satisfactory. In fact, when it came time for him to marry, he sent her away. And he became engaged to another woman, one more suitable to his social standing. But before he could marry, Augustine was required to demonstrate his chastity for two years. He even failed at this. And he says, since I was not so much a lover of marriage as a slave to lust, I found another woman for myself, not, of course, as a wife. And in this bondage to lust, Augustine confesses what every person today in the bondage of sexual lust says. He says, what held me captive and tortured me was the habit of satisfying with vehement intensity an insatiable sexual desire. There was yet another unholy love that dominated Augustine, and he calls it the lust of the mind. Remember, Augustine was endowed with a brilliant mind. He was a genius. He once said, I was at the top of the school of rhetoric. I was pleased with my superior status and swollen with conceit. It was my ambition to be a good speaker for the unhallowed and inane purpose of gratifying human vanity. And thus, with his natural genius of a mind, Strongly motivated by vainglory and the desire of praise, his mind mind was bent on the pursuit of worldly wisdom. At the age of 18, he was moved by his reading of a philosophical dialogue by Cicero, teaching that happiness can be found in one's discovery to find eternal wisdom. So he first decided to give attention to the Bible. Although he was raised as a Christian, he didn't really know the Bible that well. And when he did read it, he found it hard to believe. And he found the Bible to be undignified compared to the fancy and well-written textbooks he used to study like Cicero's. So disappointed, he put the Bible aside. And he soon became involved in serious heretical movements in his search for wisdom. He joined the Manichaean sect, which was a Gnostic sect that claimed to be Christians but taught many things that were not in the Bible. Now there's a very interesting anecdote of how Monica, Augustine's mother, would be daily praying for her son's conversion during this time. And Monica still maintained a loving relationship with Augustine in the midst of all of his licentious living. But when he turned his devotion to the Manichaean sect, she kicked him out of the house. And it's been said of Monica that she tolerated the girlfriends, but she wasn't going to tolerate heresy in her household. Now eventually, Manichaeanism did not satisfy Um, Augustine's spiritual hunger, and he later moved in Milan, and he discovered the Neoplatonic philosophy, which was also a self-consciously opposed to Christianity. But the various philosophical systems of thought, which he hoped to find wisdom and truth, only plunged him into a deeper maze of error. And by the age of 31, mental despair and heart misery led him to take up doubts up, up to the academics who believed that nothing was certain. He remained a vast problem to himself, and he said, I have become to myself a place of unhappiness in which I could not bear to be, but I could not escape myself. And Augustine will look back on this period, and he puts it rather straightforwardly. My sin was this, that I look for pleasure, beauty, and truth, not in him, but in myself and his other creatures. And quite insightfully, he adds, and the search led me to pain, confusion, and error. Yet, in God's providence, while in Milan, Augustine heard the sermons of the famous Bishop Ambrose. And he was attracted to hearing St. Ambrose preach, not because he was interested in the message he was preaching, not because he was interested in the content. But as a professor of rhetoric, he was interested in the style of oratory of Ambrose. But while he listened to Ambrose preach, he began to be exposed to the teaching of the gospel and he began to be under to go under conviction. And he was in a crisis. He was being pulled in two directions, toward God and toward the flesh. And he says, I was caught up to you by your beauty and quickly torn away from you by my weight. With a groan, I crashed into inferior things this weight was my sexual habit and what follows is one of the most important days of church history and one of the most riveting accounts of conversion ever recorded now i'll let augustine tell his intentions for recounting his conversion he says "O lord my helper and my redeemer i shall now tell and confess the glory of your name how you released me from the fetters of lust which held me so tightly shackled and from slavery to the things of this world. And in Book 8 of the Confessions, we find Augustine with a friend called Alepius in, Ju- in July 386, called the Garden Episode. They're visited by another man called Pontitianus. Now Pontitianus spots a copy of Paul's letter to the Romans that was lying open on the gaming table. And Pontit- Pontitianus then proceeded to tell the story of the Egyptian monk Antony, Now, you recall how last week, how Pastor Danny said that the life of Antony was written by Athanasians. Well, Augustine tells us that as Pontitianus spoke, his thoughts turned to himself. He describes how God moved him so that he could not avoid confronting his own condition. He says, this was a story of Pontitianus told, that while he was speaking, Lord, you turned my attention back to myself. You sat before my face so that I should see how vile I was, how twisted and filthy, covered in sores and ulcers. And I looked, and I was appalled, but there was no way of escaping myself. If I tried to avert my gaze from myself, his story continued relentlessly, and you once again placed me in front of myself. Here we see Augustine's deep awareness of his own sinfulness, and his unwillingness to confront it. He wanted to hide himself from himself, to suppress, as Romans 1 speaks of, his awareness of sin so that he did not have to deal with it. And he's even more honest with himself, as he later records praying, grant me chastity and self-control, but not yet. I was afraid that you might hear my prayer quickly and that you might too rapidly heal me of the disease of lust, which I prefer to satisfy rather than suppress. Now what a window into the heart of those who are captured in the bondage of sexual lust who can't quite let go of their sin. He said that his old loves held him back. He said that they tugged at the garment of my flesh and whispered, Are you getting rid of us? And from this moment on, are we going to be apart from you forever? From this moment on, will you never be permitted to do this or that again? Although there was a side of him that longed to serve God, the overwhelming force of habit was saying to him, do you think you can live without them? And Augustine found himself in a paralyzed position. Uh, Augustine was locating the problem within himself. And here we find Augustine's Doctrine of sin. He holds that his sin is his own problem that kept him in this bondage and in this paralyzed will. He describes how he felt before his eyes a heap of misery. And aware that the misery was about to come in the form of flood of tears, Augustine moved further away from his friend Olypius, who had followed him. And he threw himself to the ground, still paralyzed, still gripped by the past, but crying out the psalmist words, how long, O oh Lord, how long, how long is it to be? Tomorrow, tomorrow, why not now? Why not put an end to my impure life in this very hour? And as he wept, a mysterious intervention came in the form of some children singing a song. His words, as I, as I was saying this and weeping in the bitter agony of my heart, suddenly I heard a voice from a nearby house Chanting as if it might be a boy or a girl. Saying and repeating over and over again. Tole lege. Tole Legge, Pick up and read. Pick up and read. Unable to recall what the children's game they were playing. He interpreted the words as a command from God. To take up the Bible and read. And what book did he have opened before he left weeping? It was the epistle. Of Paul to the Romans. And so he says, So I hurried back to the place where Olypius was sitting, seized the letter to the Romans, and opened it, and in silence I read the first passage on which my eyes fell. And it comes from Romans 13, 13: Not in reveling and drunkenness, not in lust and wantonness, not in quarrels and rivalries, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in its lust. Then he says, I neither wished nor needed to read further. At once, with the last words of the sentence, it was as if a light of relief from all anxiety flooded into my heart. All the shadows of doubts were dispelled. Augustine, now a Christian, finding rest in God for his restless heart, now only had one consuming desire to love and serve his Savior. He says, I taste no other pleasure but that which results from speaking, hearing, writing, conferring, and perpetually dwelling upon the meditation of Thee and Thy glory. You know, one of the very intriguing ways to read Confessions is to read it through the very characters that played a role in Augustine's conversion. Chief among them is his mother, Monica, who never stopped praying for her son. She was relentless and earnest in her pursuit. When Augustine was finally converted, he immediately tells her about it, overjoyed, overjoyed, she praises God for it. Monica never gave up in her prayers and never last lost hope in God's power to save. There was also Augustine's father, Patricius, who wasn't a Christian, but desirely and ambitiously for Augustine to pursue the best education, and he played a role in sending Augustine ultimately to Milan, where he would get saved. There was also Augustine's unnamed mistress whose long relationship with her was an impediment to coming to Christ and who represented his bondage to his sexual lust. There is, of course, numerous friends of Augustine that played a key role in his life. And the friend that stands out among many is Olypius. Olypius was from Augustine's hometown and hit one of his former students. He was traveling with Augustine and happened to be there present at the precise moment of his conversion in the Garden at Milan. There is also the Bishop Ambrose a formidable theologian, an eloquent preacher who was used to drive Augustine to read the the scriptures again and to consider God again. That brings us to our main character. And the main character is not, as we might first suspect, Augustine. Rather, the main character is the one that Augustine called the hound of heaven. Augustine applies that term to God with utmost reverence, who is tracking him down hounding him from heaven and saving him from the depths of hell. All along Augustine's journey, through all the twists and turns and plots of his life, through the very characters of the drama, it was actually God who was relentlessly pursuing Augustine, and it was God that was bringing Augustine to himself. See, little did Augustine realize that a vessel of mercy was being formed and that a servant of Christ was being made, and that he should be, by God's sovereign grace, one of the mightiest champions of the truth that God has ever given to the church. Now, after he was converted, he was a figure of great importance to the church, and he was ordained as a bishop of Hippo, and for the rest of his life, until 430 A.D., Augustine worked as as a theological titan for the church of Jesus Christ. And God had raised up an Augustine in a much-needed time, of alarm and solemn fears, the church of Jesus Christ was threatened with errors from within, while from without, the fall of the Roman Empire was bringing much confusion and frightening. He was involved in some of the most theological, greatest theological controversies of church history, the most famous one being with the British monk Pelagius. Now this is not his debate with Pelagius, with the Donatists, but just to give an example, of the kind of controversies he was part of. And here we transition from Augustine's life to theology. Now, Augustine's conversion experience of God's sovereign grace was foundational for his theology and the conflict he would have with the heresy of Pelagius. Now, as we said before, heresy never appears as heresy. It never announces itself as heresy. In Augustine's day, Pelagius was apparently a very blameless and modest monk who zealously exhorted others to follow the example of Jesus Christ. And the teaching of Pelagius was so subtle and ambiguous that it passed undetected before a council of 14 bishops in Palestine. And it was left to Augustine to expose the heresy of Pelagianism. Now, Pelagius' beliefs were essentially simple. He believed that each person has the responsibility and the potential to be morally perfect. Man, Pelagius claimed, was not in the condition of original sin, but possessed a free will as Adam did before the fall. He believed that sin was inherited by example rather than by nature. Therefore, in salvation, the grace of God was not a power from God to regenerate and renew the mind, uh, to restore the fallen nature, but rather grace was something external, which, which the will could grasp if they wanted to. Now, to put it very simply, Pelagius would say that salvation is up to us. And so when Augustine's confessions were circulating far and wide, Pelagius was provoked by this one statement of his prayer. Give me the grace to do as you command, and command me to do what you will. Now, Pelagius had no problems with the second part. He believed that doing what God commands is the highest responsibility and also man's capability. It was the first part of the prayer that triggered his vehement objection in which Augustine asked, give me the grace to do as you command. Pelagius saw this as an assault to human goodness and freedom. But Augustine saw things very differently than Pelagius, and he silenced the heresy of Pelagius with some key doctrines found in God's word. One is the role of Adam. The first man is key to explaining the fallen human condition in which Augustine and all the sons of Adam find themselves. Augustine argued that the fall seriously impaired the moral ability of the human race. He said that mankind is a massa peccati, a mess of sin incapable of raising itself from spiritual death. For Augustine, man can no more move or incline himself to God than an empty glass. Can fill itself. For Augustine, then, mankind, as a divine punishment, plunged into the corrupt state known as original sin. Now, second, Augustine argued from both scripture and experience that Adam's fell left us in a state where we sin voluntarily and necessarily. Now, this sounds to be like a contradiction. How can something that is voluntary be necessary? But on closer inspection, it makes perfect sense. We have a will that wills things. Now, Augustine argued that the fallen man still has a free will. Augustine did not believe that we sin against our will as if someone forces us to sin against our desires. It is not as if we are strapped into a metal suit and our bodies are manipulated by someone else and forces us to sin. No, he says when we sin, we decide with our own wills to sin And so we sin voluntarily. However, our choices are chained by our evil impulses. Our desires are in bondage to corrupt nature that always leads to sin. In this sense, we sin voluntarily using our wills, but also necessarily. Because we can will nothing else. This is why throughout Augustine's Confessions, he speaks of his struggles with sexual lust, the lust of the mind, and the language of captivity of bondage, of being chained. Therefore, the freedom of the will we have in our fallen state is merely a hollow freedom. It is a freedom without liberty, a real moral bondage. True liberty, Augustine argued, can only come from without, from the work of God in the soul. And that is why he says our salvation does not depend on human will or human exertion, but it depends solely on the grace of God One of Augustine's favorite verse was 1 Corinthians 4, 7. What what do you have that you did not receive? Apart from Christ, we are dead in sin. So that even the initial turning of our will to God is a gift. The dead cannot resurrect themselves. Faith is a gift received and left to our own devices. All we ever do is sin. Now scripture describes our salvation as a new creation, a new birth, a new resurrection. Yet God didn't say to his non-existent universe, I'm offering to create you, but it's up to you to accept the offer. Parents do not say to non-existent children, we're offering to conceive you, but it's up to you to accept the offer. The Lord did not say to Lazarus, I'm offering to resurrect you from the tomb, but it's up to you to accept the offer. Ridiculous. That is why an up-to-us kind of pelagious belief it's such a tragically hopeless recipe for any kind of salvation. If, in, if it indeed is really up to us for salvation, then no one will ever be saved. That is why the Bishop of Hippo sang loud and clear a song a confession that every true saved heart knows well when he says it's not up to us. We were dead in our transgressions and sins in which we used to live when we followed the ways of the world. We were under the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who is now in the work of the spirit of disobedience. We lived among them. We lived to gratify the desires of the flesh. We were by nature like the rest children of wrath. But God, who was rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. And after piling verse upon verse upon God's riches of salvation, he says, All this is from God, who has reconciled us to himself through Christ. Thanks be to God. One of the heroes of my faith is the late Augustinian theologian R.C. Sproul. And he wrote that the church today is very largely in a Pelagian captivity. And the reason why R.C. says that is because our understanding of the character of God continues to dwindle while simultaneously our understanding of the character of man continues to get bigger. Beloved, in order to break free from the Pelagian captivity, we must do what Augustine did in his own life, and that is to know the greatness of God Because you see, for Augustine, the deeper that he studied the character of God, the greater he sensed his own dependence upon God's grace. Because the more we understand God, the more we understand how far short of God we fall. This is what led the reformer John Calvin to write in the first sentence of the Institutes, the whole sum of our wisdom consists in two parts, the knowledge of God And the knowledge of ourselves. And as long as we do not look beyond ourselves. We are perfectly content with our perfect own righteousness. We flatter. And we even congratulate ourselves. But if we turn our thoughts toward the Lord. And realize his perfect righteousness. Wisdom and power. Then we will view ourselves for what we truly are. And that our righteousness is nothing but filthy rags. And utterly evil. The great sin of Pelagianism. Augustine declared, is that it makes a man forget why he is a Christian. Brothers and sisters, let us never forget why you are a Christian. You are who you are now in Christ solely by the grace of God. Now, very closely related to the sovereign of grace, I'll I'll talk about this really quickly, is, is that Augustine was distinguished as being a theologian of love, and from his magnum opus to the trinity in which he describes the trinity in a community of love, he says that human beings made in God's image are made to love, yet what Augustine concluded was that the human nature now was deeply flawed. This drive to love, this innate desire to find meaning and satisfaction through love, remains in every heart, but now it is turned inward from loving God to loving self. As Augustine wrote in his Confessions, the single desire that dominated my search for delight was simply to love and to be loved. And he confesses how slow I was to find my joy. Because his main objective of love was himself. And the self cannot provide a truly satisfying object of love. Now, were Augustine here today, he would no doubt point to the massive disparity between the high levels of material wealth and the low levels of satisfaction in Western society, an example of how materialism and this consumerist mindset does not quench the desires of our hearts and our loves, but we come, keep coming back for more and more. Or Augustine would probably see the rise of internet pornography as both the place of seeking sexual satisfaction in human existence and also the self-absorption of human beings. As one writer said, pornography is powerful, Because it does touch on sexuality, a thing tightly connected to the need to love, to unite with another, but it also reduces sex to a commodity, an object. It makes no relational demands upon the individual. It promises satisfaction without strings attached. That is why seeing that one picture or that video is not enough to the satisfaction, because it's fleeting. And so like Augustine, who kept drinking from the dregs of sexual immorality and sipping from the world's idea of love, those who are addicted to pornography or any other vice keep returning to it again and again to find a few fleeting moments to quench their thirst. But Augustine gives the true key to finding our satisfaction of our joy and our love and I'll let Augustine speak how sweet all at once it was for me to be rid of those fruitless joys which I have once feared to lose. You drove them from me. You are the true sovereign joy. And he is the key, key sentence. You drove them from me and took their place. You are sweeter than all pleasure, though not to flesh and blood. You who outshine all light, yet hidden deeper than any secret in our hearts. You who surpass all honor. O oh Lord, my God, my light, my wealth, and my salvation. God, Augustine held, is an insatiable satisfaction, sweeter than all pleasure. And in his analysis, then sin is a misdirected longing for beauty that only God can supply in a person's life. For Augustine, loving God and delighting in God is the only way that a restless heart can find satisfaction when it finds its rest in god and so let us realize then brothers and sisters that in the presence of god there is a presence of joy and in his right hand there are pleasures forevermore and you need to then come to jesus and drink from his everlasting fountain of love and he will trade you beauty for ashes eternal lasting joy for mourning and a heart of freedom for the chains of bondage now, as Augustine became older, at the age of 76, the Vandals came from Spain to attack the part of Africa where Augustine lived in Hippo. Now, Hippo was a strong city with high walls, and it became home to the flocks of refugees seeking shelter within its walls. And as the Vandals had surrounded the city of Hippo for many months, it was the aged bishop of uh, uh, Augustine who preached to a hungry and weary and frightened people. To look to God for their help. Now during the siege in the mid-August of four thirty, Augustine caught a severe flu, which he took which took his life in ten days. And we read what happened in this ancient biography of this of his last days. In those final days, because he could no longer get out of bed or hold his beloved books, he had ordered the four Psalms of David called penitential psalms. Now these were all about repenting and forgiveness. In God, he asked for the penitential psalms to be copied out. And from his sick bed, he could see the sheets of paper every day hanging on his walls, and he would read them, crying constantly and deeply. He also asked that no one would come see him except during meals or during the doctor's visits so that he could spend more time in prayer. What amazes me is that a, a man of the stature of Augustine, who accomplished so much for the Lord, publishing over 130 books, champion of the greatest controversies in church history, a bishop who preached and served his flock for 40 years, would see it as an absolute necessity to prepare himself to death by constant and vigilant prayer in the penitential Psalms of David. You see, beloved, Augustine wasn't simply a doctor of grace because of what he taught and wrote of sinners, desperate need of the grace of God for salvation. But his life is a testimony of the triumph of grace as he lived by it and as he died by it, knowing to the very last breath that it was all by grace alone that one can be saved. Let's pray together. I would like To pray a prayer from Augustine, I think it would be fitting for us to pray a prayer of his, and we must pray it in our own hearts. Let's pray together. I know, O Lord, and do with all humility acknowledge myself, an object altogether unworthy of your love, but sure I am, you are an object altogether worthy of mine. I am not good enough to serve you, but you have the right to the best service I can pay. Do you then impart to me some of that excellence, and that shall supply my own want of worth. Help me to seize from sin according to your will, that I may be capable of doing you service according to my duty. Enable me to so guard and govern myself, so to begin and finish my course, that when the race of life is run, I may sleep in peace and rest in you. Be with me to the end, that my sleep may rest in thee, my rest Perfect security, and that security a blessed eternity. Through Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen.